welcome, welcome, welcome to an episode of Designer DAO, where we talk about Web3 and design. Today we are back to talk about circling the drain when growth at your startup stagnates. I'm here with the main man, Paulo, uh, talking about growth stagnation at startups. I think, uh, obviously, our podcast is focused on Web3, but surprisingly enough a lot of web3 are startups so a lot of this advice can be applicable to both startup vibes and web3 um i guess let's just start with the topic when growth stagnates um i'll go on my little spiel so i've worked in the startup space for a couple years now and i always find especially with early stage startups there's this moment where like okay we've gotten enough money and we've solved like a little bit of a problem but we don't know how to get from like point A to like growth and sustainable growth to be independent and not be dependent on VC funding. Um, And that space is a really hard space to be in. It's very uncomfortable and everybody's just kind of like guessing at what's gonna be the thing to get us out of this like hard spot. Uh, What's your experience on this? Yeah, I mean, I think this is also very relevant to Web3, to be honest, not just Web2 startups, because mm-hmm. uh, we're still in the bear market, right? <laughs> so <laughs> everybody <laughs> everybody is kind of stagnant and not really growing, I guess, except for maybe friends at tech last week. Um, <laughs> but um, so I think, it, I think it is quite relevant. And to make matters worse uh, in Web3, we also have the whole, um, you know, it, it's a niche market, right? It's a very, yeah. still very geeky thing. Only very few people know what it's about and can actually have the literacy to use it and engage with it and so on. And um, in the bear market is even more so. I mean, I've been, I've been in a couple of situations like that. Maybe um, I'm in one of those situations myself right now. It's just hard to admit that we... Um, don't really know how to grow from here. It's, it's tough. Yeah, and the uh, and and I think it is both um, desperating, uh, you know, frustrating, um, but also kind of exi- exciting. I mean, I've also worked at corporations where people knew what they had to do, knew what the business was, knew what the growth strategy was, and the growth was predictable, and you just needed to execute, and you were a factory, and that's it, right? And that's not that's boring and not really uh, exciting as well. So, yeah. Sorry, the, go ahead. yeah. The the opposite of that is uh, uncertainty all around you. You don't know how you're going to succeed. You don't know what's the thing that's going to um, make your company successful. And the only option that you have is to experiment as much as possible, and yeah. as and as. Um, deliberately as possible, and also I would say as extremely as, as possible, right? Sometimes people experiment always in the same domain and or with neighboring uh, mm-hmm. ideas or concepts, you know, and that's not diverse enough, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think people should, you know, um, do more extreme experiments and the kind of experiment that maybe would risk the whole business, right? Like uh, if uh, you experiment in such an extreme way, that risks your whole business and maybe even reputation and whatever you accomplished until now. Uh, if it goes, if it fails, uh, that's scary. But if it succeeds, then it's your genius, right? 
And so I think it is exciting to be in that kind of uh, context and situation because at least you are forced to do something and try to experiment and, and move, move something, I mean, create something new basically, yeah. I also think in this phase it's important to be honest, like the organization to be honest with itself. And yeah, yeah. I think a lot of what I see in Web3 is wishful thinking, miraculous thinking. I mean, that's a part of the reason why we're all here. And that's great to like start ideas, to to inspire, to move forward. But I think what what it can do a lot of times is prevent you from un- understanding like when to pivot. When when should you like, you know, like you said, like make really strong bets. And when especially when you're in this, you know, the spot where you're like, you know, your one way is dwindling. Uh, I, you know, it's, it's easy to, to like, well, what if we just like improve this little thing, you know, because yeah. you're, you're, you've gotten so, um, attached to what you've built and you, you're, you're too afraid to make a large bet. Um, yeah. I, 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 I mean, I think, I think that's actually the, the biggest, um, hurdle that most people face in this kind of situation is to admit mm-hmm. to themselves and to the organization at large that uh, they're not in a good spot right now. <laughs> First yeah. of all, because there's a lag in understanding that that's the case, right? When the market somehow uh, shows you that you're no longer relevant or you're not really growing as you were expecting to, mm-hmm. uh, you only understand that a little bit later than when actually the thing happened, right? So you, you, you get evidence that you're stagnating uh, after it already happened, right? Yeah. And then people, people are attached to the idea of what they've done and to their little baby ideas and concepts and all that. And um, the emotional processing that is needed for people to kind of reckon with the fact that, oh, this thing that I've been working for the past one year, two years, three years is actually not needed or not worth it or not good enough, right? And I think that reckoning is actually what stumps I would say most people in these kind of situations, and um, it is uh, it is a it is an issue of being honest with with yourself and with your teams and and uh, facing the harsh reality of it. And I think in Web three in our space we have a lot of you know um, hype and a lot of uh, cultish vibes around. Uh, everything, I mean, we're all going to make it and so on and so forth. Yeah, wag me. Wag me all the way. Yeah. That when something like this happens, people take a long while to realize that it's not working. And then maybe it's already too late. And then they don't have any more money. And then they have to shut it down. That's it. Uh, instead of realizing that sooner and pivoting sooner and trying to experiment something new, right? So I think that uh, we're kind of desensitized already in Web3 to see startups starting and startups uh, uh, failing and closing, uh, maybe a bit too much. And we just say, oh, no, oh, you see, it's the bull market and it's the bear market and that's it, which is kind of a lazy excuse because in reality is, you know, people were trying to do something. They didn't realize that they were failing soon enough and they didn't pivot in time and they didn't I was just about to that. say that like my last point before we like um start to elaborate on this topic is like a lot of things I see is blaming the market and I yeah. think it's so easy like it's said, so easy 
like like you said it's it's a cop out it's it's a it's yeah. a fucking excuse let's be real and yeah. if you're and also if you're better if your product is only successful when everything is great then like there's a problem right there you you should be building market sustainable products and services um and i think they look at the the you know the bear market and they're like oh this is temporary and they look at the bull market is like that's normal and i think they need to flip their mindset in, in terms of like no you should build with a bear market mindset and if you and if you're in bull then that's great it's just icing on the cake but if you cannot sustain yourself in, in a downward swing market then the product wasn't going to survive anyway yeah and i think there's i think there's another misconception around this which is people think that you know, there are bull market kind of products and offerings, and then there are bear market kind of products and offerings, which I don't think is true. I think no. there are products that serve human needs and products that don't serve human needs, independent of the bull market or bear market. I think that if you're building something that, you know, improves people's lives in whatever shape or form it is, mm-hmm. people will always pay for it if, it's, if it is uh, helping them in a meaningful way. Independently, independently, if it is bear market or bull market, what makes a difference with the with the market state is that, as a startup, the speed at which you can execute in a bull market is faster, because yeah. there's more money, more investment, more sales, more everything. But that's just it. That's it's a matter of speed of execution, uh, and scaling. Let's say, not really a matter of this is a bull market product and this is a bear market product. Yeah. That should not exist. I mean, you should build products the way that you think they are correct to serve human needs, not because the market is in this way or that way. And that's why I think that Web3 is sort of in a weird uh, alternate universe because, <laughs> because we will like psych ourselves and like do mental gymnastics to like avoid the cold, hard fucking truth. Which is like, like regular startups don't don't function this way. Like, oh, the reason why we're not doing good is because variable market. Google Maps, Google, you know, like Gmail isn't market dependent. You know, like good products aren't that. And I think it's just so funny how we're we're so we love to persevere, and I admire that about us. But it's also you know very agitating that we will recreate and like definitions and paradigms just to fit our own niche. And that's, you know, part of the problem with, with this industry, you know? Yeah. And, and um, I mean, I think it comes from the fact that we are in a niche industry, right? Yeah. People, normal people outside of this industry look at us and we're kind of probably seem a bit crazy to them. And <laughs> yeah. so, and so when that's the case, the kind of personalities that you attract to these kind of fields and these kind of areas, right? The kind of personalities that you attract to Web3 are the kind of people that need to be open-minded enough to try out something new and crazy like Web3, right? And so the downside of that is they start believing their own bullshit too much, right? So, and so, yeah. which, 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 I mean, uh, it is normal. I mean, we shouldn't be shocked about it. So. So uh, um, it is kind of very uh, frequent to see um, people clearly, um, you know, failing in the sense that they're not building the right product for the right market and don't have traction, they don't have growth, etc. But still psyching themselves and convincing themselves that this is the right thing and this is correct and 
and believing that wholeheartedly, right? So, I mean, uh, it, I think it also sinks to the fact that we're we're a niche industry. We're uh, we're considered kind of crazy, and that attracts the kind of personalities that uh, that would uh, have a hard time to believe that uh, the beliefs that they had before are actually wrong. Um, and I mean, I, I'm 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 saying this, and I'm thinking about myself, and I've done this multiple times as well. So I'm not I'm not saying yeah. that that I, I haven't no done that. No one's safe. For sure. I, I'm reflecting on my own behavior as well, right? Because, I mean, I'm sure we all that are in this industry, we all at some point were kind of blinded by the, you know, oh, it's going up. Oh, it's, 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 this is a good bet. This is, I mean, I was so smart because I invested on this. I was so smart because I took the decision because it was going up and you forgot to remember that maybe it was luck above, above all else, right? And, and yeah, so, we've all doubled down on bad decisions for sure. Like you ever like been confronted with with a fact or a truth and then your first instinct is like, ah, it's not true. Yeah, because, <laughs> not... because you're already invested on on, yeah. on previous decisions. So yeah. yeah all right. So our good. first point that I want to elaborate on is like one of the signs that your growth at your startup or at your web three organization is stagnating is you are unsure of what to build meaning your product roadmap starts to become more and more obscure. You start to get real loosey-goosey with planning. You start to have a lot of meetings and not a lot of action items. Um, Not not a lot of shipping as well. Not a lot of shipping, a lot of pontificating, a lot of uh, meetings about meetings. Um, I'll let you go first on this one. How do you, how have you seen this? Um, And- yeah, I, I think I think that's I think that's true. Um, I mean, when when you're thinking in the startup, when you're thinking about the product roadmap, and you're not sure, there could be two types of not being sure what to build, which mm-hmm. is that you have two options, right? Two different strategies, two different options, and you are torn between option A and option B, which is it happens a lot, and and you know it's a, a prioritization product management kind of issue. Um, and I would not say that that's a symptom of uh, stagnation and growth. It could be yeah. just, you know, plain and simple uh, lack of a clear defined strategy or, or a vision even and so on. Uh, but also there's some other types of uh, uh, not having a clear roadmap, which is like, well, we've done this uh, up until now. It kind of worked, kind of didn't. And now we're basically empty and we have no idea what to do next because uh, we're kind of cornered in, into what we already done before, uh, and uh, if we build on top of that, we, we're only going to do incremental stuff that's not really that valuable and it's not going to really move the needle. And so we right now are afraid to maybe experiment with something completely different than what we've done before, that maybe would represent the pivot in the strategy of the company and the vision of the company and so on. Right? I think that's the kind of like not really know what to build next in your product map, product roadmap that actually clearly indicates that what you've been doing up until now would lead is leading you to stagnation and i look at that kind of thing kind of situation from the point of view of like this is the clear symptom and signal that we should pivot and we should try something yeah. different yeah and and i would even say not like 20 percent different than what we've done before but like a lot that like 180 degrees difference <laughs> because the more extreme you experiment the more you find out basically and so you in this kind of scenarios usually organizations are, are, uh, are in the point where 
they just need to learn much more about different things that they than the ones that they've been learning until now, so that they can be you know um, uh, maybe even maybe closer to finding something successful. Yeah, I think this 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 one is a little bit more nuanced, like you were pointing out. I think there could be a couple of different reasons why you're unsure of what to build. I think in scenario one, where like you've built something, you kind of have a group of users and you've gotten feedback on your product, meaning your product isn't like great. You still have like glaring issues you need to solve for, but you're unsure whether solving those issues are going to necessarily result in growth. Um, And then there's other scenarios where your product, you know, your user flows and everything are great, but you're still not seeing growth and and you're like kind of stuck and you're unsure of what to build. and I guess I guess op- magical option three is like you're unsure of what to build because like building has been strenuous. There's you know maybe personalities on the team that's made it hard, or there has been like collaboration issues. Um, so I think those are uh, you know separate issues. I think in option one, if your product's not doesn't have a like a streamlined user experience, like meaning your users are still complaining about glaring issues. A part of me says, solve those issues first, if they're not too much, you know, too much investment and see what happens. Um, Because, you know, that might be the thing that is preventing people from either recommending your product or, um, or buying it or, yeah, or or buying it or using it more. Um, In the second scenario where, you know, your product is great and you're still not growing I, I agree with you paula like you need to pivot that's basically yeah. what you're saying like basically you solved this problem this problem isn't lucrative enough to still like be um worth solving further or expanding on and so you just need to pivot um yeah that's easier said than done i think like you like we said stated earlier a lot of people have like a strong attachments to you know the birth of the organization and it's, it's hard to like abandon that for something else but i mean while you, you still got a little bit of runway you kind of have to like you know do a hell mary and see if there's anything else out there um yeah i've also um, let, let me just let me just add something on the first one which is yeah. i've also i've also seen some situations where people pivot too soon because they didn't uh, let the first experiment run fully meaning they have like you're saying they have a product the product has glaring issues they didn't solve those and they considered the experiment as a failure right i think that's also unfair i think it's unfair to uh shut something down and without actually uh trying it uh for real right because uh it is uh it is very often the fact that people experiment something, but they don't really go deep enough to really be sure that, I mean, it's not our fault that we didn't build the right product. Our product is actually built right, and uh, people like to use it. It's just that it's not a big enough market, it's not a big enough Mm -hmm. painful thing for us to solve that people are willing to pay for, blah, 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 other issues, right? So there's a lot of situations where people give up on an idea and on an experiment because uh, they didn't fully tested it and that's also a bit uh a bit that's also bad right yeah on i like the other, on, they didn't place a full bet you, you were half in half out you, yeah, you yeah, yeah, yeah exactly yeah exactly you, but you didn't fully like go into your your core concept and that's the issue yeah um especially if you're getting user if you're getting user feedback and they're saying hey you know this is great except for this whole other 
part that's missing. You shipped an MVP and you never expanded on it. Basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that also <laughs> happens a lot, especially on like you know lean startup culture, which is like mm-hmm. let's experiment, let's launch a bunch of experiments and so on. I, I I've seen it happen a bunch of times where people don't actually give the due effort and time to a particular experiment and then give up on that too too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not a huge fan of lean startup personally. Um. I'm actually not a huge fan of a hu- a lot of pre- prescriptive stuff because this shit is just so nuanced. It's just there's no there's no prescription that's gonna get you to to this thing. Like ninety percent of startups fail, and they fail for a reason. And if there was a if there was a model or there's a subscription that worked for everybody, uh, we'd be we would be ninety percent. So yeah, exactly. That that number would have to be different. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, um, uh, prescriptions are great to sell books and, and podcasts. And stuff. Exactly. Okay, so end of that rant. I'm full of mini rants. Um, and then the third one, it's been hard to build. There's a collaboration issue. I think mm-hmm. this happens a lot in Web3 because we got a lot of strong personalities, as you've said. And I think you got to get your team right because if you have a good team, you can build anything. But if you yeah. don't have a good team, um, your team's going to kill you before everything else in, that, in the market is going to kill you. So I think um, a one thing that I've also noticed since Web3 is like, I either see stakeholders that are like super friendly and like want to be everybody's pal, or I see st- stakeholders that are like cutthroat <laughs> and like <laughs> ready to fire people. And I think for the the friendly CEOs, the friendly founders, I think you have to really take a step back out of your ego Take a step, look at the dynamics in the team, size up everybody, and be honest with yourself on like who are the problem people? Who are the people who are slowing things down? Who are the people that that every time you interact with them, it's tough? Um, who are the people? And I think a lot of office politics can cloud the true outliers, you know, because yeah. someone might be likable, but ultimately is not a good worker, you know? Or someone might be a good worker, but ultimately it's hard to collaborate with. So I I would take a step back as founders, if you're not a DAO yet, and really like write out everybody, write out their strengths, their weaknesses, you know, your past experiences with them and figure out where the, the fat is and, and rehire. I think in startup, you got to be quick. I mean, what is the, the saying is like slow to hire, quick to fire. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's kind of true in a lot of ways. Um, and that might be adding to the uncertainty of what to build because there's too many cooks in the kitchen or there's, you know, bad personalities um, and things like that. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, you, you're talking about the failure rate of startups. And I, I read somewhere that a while ago that uh, the number one reason why startups fail is uh, team issues. Specifically, yeah. <laughs> specifically, co-founders not getting along yeah. after a while, right? And so, yeah. I mean, we, we should we should operate with the with the with the with the assumption in mind, which is, I mean, if you're trying to build something as a team, uh, you should figure out the team part first, correctly, right? I mean, so yeah. I, I think that everything that we're talking about about road mapping and and uh, growth stagnating and all that, it all assumes that the team is actually productive and functional, and also. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they know how to collaborate. They are competent at, at doing the, at what they need to do, and so on. Which, uh, honestly, is again uh, the main reason why why organizations, all organizations, fail. To be honest, 
And, I've noticed um, particularly in Web3, though, we struggle with this because Web3 is such a niche market. And so people are so quick to hire any talent that has any remote experience. I think I went mm-hmm. on a rant about this sometime a year ago or a year or two ago. We're like, we're not, if we're, if you're going to run a DAO like organization where everybody has like stakes and like power, you really need to, you should care more about this person's character and who they are than even their skill set at times, because yeah. you can skill somebody up. You can't change fundamentally who somebody is. Um, and that's why I yeah. felt the need to like point that out because we, we, so how many public fallouts have we seen in Web3 of teams? Uh-oh. Um, all of them. <laughs> no, I yeah. felt like it was it was enough to point it out, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. So but, hiring, but I, for sure. I do think I do think we have an opportunity in Web three to structure teams differently because I think that mm-hmm. most of the times where where teams fail is because the incentives are not aligned properly, and you know yeah. people can people can complain about that in a million different ways from both sides. Doesn't matter. But we do have an opportunity in Web3 to structure teams in a more, in a better way that aligns incentives better, that at least would remove that kind of problems from uh, being the culprit of why something fails, right? Because yeah. we do have now uh, recipes to uh, structure organizations that would involve, you know, people having ownership of the thing, people having voice in the thing, in the strategy, in the decisions of the thing, uh, people, you know, um, um, evaluating each other in a in a in a in a peer way, um, so on and so forth, right? So, I mean, we do have the opportunity to change that, and I think it is kind of a requirement to do it. Otherwise, we'll just be repeating the same mistakes that startups in Web two did, and we're yeah. going to be failing for the same reasons. And 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 actually, the way you structure a team is probably the most fundamental thing that you need to do as a as an organization. If you want to yeah. uh, build something and, and be successful with something. Yeah, not enough forethought a lot of times. So like uh, ways to solve this. I think if you're unsure what to build and your product roadmap is becoming more obscure, I think, I mean, I my gut says invest in research. And I, I, I say this, but a lot of people in startup land don't like this because they, they hear research and they, and they hear a long drawn out thing that's going to stop them from building. But I, I feel like place a bet do research on that bet and then go go in that direction um oh sorry hello, hello. <laughs> yeah no no I, I think i think we have to um um i i think we have to pull the research card in here because it is actually what i what i think is to be honest it's very hard to sell research when things are going well in an organization you know because why why change, right? If, if we're growing and if we're doing well, we actually don't need research, right? We know what we're doing and that's what people think. So it's hard to sell research in, the, in those kind of contexts. But in the context where there's the pain of like, we're not growing, we don't know what we're doing, and we don't know if we're doing the right thing or not. We don't know if we, if we are in the right space. We don't know if we have the right product. We don't know if we have the right customer, blah, 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 blah. In that kind of context, is where I think research actually shines from the point of view of like, that's where research is really needed. And so uh, I think it should be our default response to that kind of context because uh, I mean, the whole job of research is to bring clarity into, you know, how will you make decisions? 
going forward, how you define your strategy, how you define your vision, how you define your market, how you define your product, how you define your customer, blah, blah, blah. And so um, from my point of view as a designer, I, I have no better tool than research to answer that. And uh, if uh, people complain about, oh, it's too expensive, oh, it's going to take too long, oh, it's going to force us to stop building, I mean, so what, right? How do you prefer you to continue building something? Oh, exactly. Do you prefer to just to keep building for the sake of building just so you don't, what, you don't stop? Just because, yeah. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it doesn't. And I think this is an opportunity. If you have someone in the organization who has experience doing research, obviously leverage that. But I think... Um, like we've established in other con and other podcasts, the, 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 you know, the worst research is, is bad research. And so mm-hmm. I think with teams that are immature um, and don't have exposure to research, I think it's, it's not like invest 10 G's and a, a, you know, decent research um, person who is well-versed in the field. Um, and because it's not, once you know you need to do research, you really need a qualified professional to understand the the question you really want to ask. Because yeah. um, especially in this panic mode, you're going to be like, uh, verify this assumption. Uh, go here, go there. You're going to be like running around like a chicken with your head cut off. You All know? over the place, yeah. You, you need a person to, to sit you down and be like, what is the bet that you're placing? What do you really want to find out? Yeah, and um, I, I would even yeah. I would even add something, which is most likely the best person to do that is someone from the outside of the organization, because the people yeah. that are on the inside of the organization they're already biased, right? They already have that baggage. They already mm-hmm. went through through the things that they went through to get to that point. And so, as harsh as this may sound, uh, they, as a researcher, at that point, they will even if they're super competent, super skilled they are already biased, which means that the research that they will produce is probably not mm-hmm. going to be the best. So I would say that at that point, what makes more sense is to get research from the outside. Uh, and uh, of course, it needs to be competent. Of course, it needs to be well compensated, but also needs to be given the autonomy and the power, really, to mm-hmm. uh, be able to research what what should be researched. Because a big, part, a big part of the research job in that kind of situation in context is like, Oh, the organization is telling me that the reason why they're not succeeding is X, is this reason, right? And so the problem is framed in this way. The work of a researcher yeah. in that in that moment is to, okay, wait, 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 wait. I'm not going to take for granted the framing that you're giving me. I'm going to understand the problem first deeply and then coming up with a new framing because most of the times when organizations frame their problem in a particular way, there's only a few set of solutions that they can try from that framing, right? Which are already limited. Yeah. The true innovation right, of research is to, that they have an option A and option B. You just need to yeah, verify exactly. those options. Yeah. Which, which, which means that they're already so narrowed down in the possibilities of the, the path that they can go that, I mean, it's, it's probably not correct, right? And so mm-hmm. it's kind of that saying of like, the mindset that creates a problem is not the mindset that creates the solution, right? So yeah. um, someone that comes in from the outside with a new uh, point of view on what the problem of the organization is that reframes what the problem is to a new framing and then with the organization starts to uh, draft some potential avenues for solutions that I think is the best context and honestly probably the only option to survive <laughs> at that point. It's, it's very few options. I think uh, shout out to Open UX. You can hire them to do research. And they also have public yeah. research studies that they're publishing right now. 
Um, they're, they have a Gitcoin grant if you want to donate. Um, but yes, I, I agree with all that. Um, you, you need to, for, you, you don't know what you don't know, essentially. You have to be open to other possibilities. Um, I think another thing in the situation I said before where you haven't placed a full bet, I think build your roadmap around glaring user issues that won't take a ton of time fixing. Um, yeah. So I would say like for the next quarter, really focus on honing in your product and getting it to a state that solves user problems. And um, you're and, and at that point you're talking to users, you're, you're, you're introducing solutions to them, you're gut testing stuff and, and de- dedicate a season to that. Um, any, you know, obviously any issues that's going to require like huge developmental changes or like, you know, six, you know, take more than like, a, you know, a month or two. And obviously those are not going to be worth solving. You're going to be burning too much money. Um, but especially if you have to pivot, even after you solve those problems, you're going to need runway for that. Um, but I, I do say dedicate a season or a quarter, uh, depending on your ro- on your runway, obviously um to solving those issues um and testing with your users to see if those issues are actually solved because there's a difference between you think it's solved versus they think it's solved um and and make sure that uh, any points on that whenever you haven't placed a full bet yeah i mean i've seen a lot of situations where people especially leadership in organizations try to push the team to ship new things ship new things ship new things all the time and mm-hmm. never maintain or revise the things that they've already done and uh, improve mm-hmm. the quality of them, right? And so I think that uh, um, uh, in those kind of scenarios, in those kind of contexts, it is really needed to uh, make the time to, okay, let's not ship anything new, this sprint or this whatever time period yeah. that we define, and let's actually improve either the reliability, either the experience, either the mm-hmm. security of the thing, whatever it is, the issue at hand, uh, and see if that if that moves the needle. Because it is, I mean, I've been in situations where the stupidest bug that nobody had catched was, was you know, was preventing hundreds of users of using an app, right? And so sometimes it's really as stupid as a very simple thing to fix that you don't know about because you were too in a rush to ship things and to ship the next version and to ship the next feature and so on, that you're capping your growth because of that. Oh, sorry. Um, I will also say like usability testing in this area. Like if you already gotten a lot of feedback or like some semblance of indicator that there's something wrong with the app um, and you want to pinpoint exactly what is worth putting a season into, or like what are the biggest pain points? Because yeah. I know when you get user feedback, it's kind of all over the place. And you don't know like the scale of like, okay, is this really a problem or is this like just two people's problem? Um, I would definitely invest in usability testing your whole user flow and seeing where the huge drop-offs are um, and where the huge pain points are and then placing bets on and creating a roadmap around those things. Sorry. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that, that's, that's, that, that's the way to do it. Uh, what I think uh, is the, I mean, I'm assuming that all designers know that that's the thing that they should do or all product managers know that that's the thing that they should do. I think that usually the uh, the resistance against that comes from leadership because they yes. are acting under this uh, this mindset of, no, no, we cannot stop. We need to maintain momentum. We need to ship more things, ship, 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 ship. Mm-hmm. We cannot have a, a relief period to retrospect on what we've done 
and uh, improve the aspects of it that were not shipped correctly because we were in a rush for an arbitrary deadline that someone set up, right? So, so I think it comes from that kind of uh, that kind of mindset that uh, I mean, we all know deep down doesn't produce quality products, right? It produces mm-hmm. uh, first mover advantages, and maybe you can go to market first because of that, but and maybe capture and have an advantage, maybe in some situations. But still, you cannot rely on that strategy for a long time, right? You have to eventually stop and review what you've done and refactor it and improve the quality of it and so on. And I'll also stand on this. Like, people don't care about who did it first. They care about who did it best. Um, yeah, I mean, Apple, Apple has proved that. first email servicers and Gmail beat them because they, yeah. <laughs> they provided a better experience. We have a bunch <laughs> of examples of that being true, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So our second point, uh, and this might not be that long to spend on, is like you continue to test with power users. You are building it with only your most loyal customers in mind. Uh, this is especially a Web three thing. I think we get mm-hmm. super fans, especially early on, and they're great, and they're always in the Discord, and they're always the down to support us. But then we forget that like this isn't the greater audience. This isn't, um, you know, this isn't we've already tapped this this user market. Like the people who are gonna be super users are the max amount of people we're gonna see. And I think sometimes you get so hung up on building for your, your fans or your super fans that you don't see the potential um, avenues for growth in other areas and other segments of the pop, you know, the population you're targeting. Um, have you seen yeah. this before? Yeah, I, I felt this today, actually. I was doing a user, a user interview with one of our users, and I realized that he was such a power user, such a, a governance nerd, um, that uh, at a certain point I was like, how many people like this are there in the world? Like 50, 100? Yeah. And so that's our, that's, our, that's our whole user base now. It can't be, right? So, I mean, um, um, we are operating in a niche that's called Web3, and then a bunch of us are doing uh, products inside Web3, so inst- inside of a smaller niche of Web3, right? And niche so, of a niche. <laughs> a niche of a niche. I mean, this is, this is such a small, small market that can be counted. Uh, I mean, we can count our users in the you know, tens, hundreds, maybe thousands a, bit, a little bit. And so if you're operating in that scale, you need to keep in mind that, uh, I mean, if you want to scale and be successful and have a big impact in the world, right? You cannot just serve those people. You have to serve a much bigger population of people. You can be inspired and you can kickstart your journey from the power users and from the super fans. That's how it should be done, obviously. But then at a certain point, you need to be like, okay, I cannot just continue to serve them and only them. I need to change my product strategy to serve a much bigger uh, um, population. And that's a that's a painful thing. And some power users can even feel betrayed because of that and uh, you know mm-hmm. so um that's a, a courageous decision that needs to be done at some point but uh i mean uh, i think that's one of the worst ways to fail in a, in a startup in an organization is to uh you know keep serving as such a small such a niche market that uh i mean you have no no other way to grow so that's very painful. I'll, I'll say it in a more uh, harsh way. Get out of your ego. 
you you love those power users because they're hyping you up. They're making you feel and great. They're, and, they're, and, they're, and, they're, and they're like you. And they're like you. They look like you. They get excited about <laughs> yeah. the same things as you. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah. You're not they're serving yourself. You should not be You're just soaking it up. You're just like, yeah, everything we do is great. Yeah, we'll build with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, but then, like you said, you're targeting a, a, a niche of a niche, and you're not going to grow. You got to get out of your comfort zone. You can't um, rely on your power users to, to help optimize your product. Because as long I mean, this might be controversial, but your power users are going to be there. Unless you radically change your product model, they're going to be there. You can kind of bank on them being there. Who's not going to be there is the, like, 99.9% of people who don't even know what the hell your product is. Uh, or people who are actually close, like adjacent to your power users, and you're not solving their problems at all, or even trying to solve their problems. So um, I think it's it's really you have to humble yourself and and really target and research and and also target and test with people outside of your power user group, you know, because that's how you're going to get real honest feedback. Yeah, I mean uh, that's exactly that, and the. One other thing is that power users have no other way, right? They are stuck with you, basically. <laughs> so because there's there's not there's not, there's not a lot of other companies building products for them, right? Because it's mm-hmm. not a big market, so they have no other option than to stick with you, even if you start swerving the product strategy away from them as the primary user. So I mean, don't be scared of losing them because they they have no other way. Uh, I mean, yeah. we we actually we we actually saw examples of people that are power users that if they were not using our product, they would develop their own version of the product. Like, because they're developers and they will be like, oh, maybe I can hack away MVP for myself and, you know, maybe that's enough and then I don't need to rely on you guys, right? So if, if, that's the, if the case is such a, so extreme like that, I mean, it's a small market for sure. So Yeah, we saw a lot of that Coordinate too. People were hacking together solutions or saying if, if it wasn't for Coordinate, they would just like, create a very complex Google yeah. sheet. You know? I, did, I, I did a spreadsheet. I did a spreadsheet like that for our endow. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So I, I, was, I was one of those, I guess, at some point. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess my next point um, is uh, you start to heavily, we talked about this a little bit, you start to heavily focus on output. You, 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 start, you and your team start to prioritize shipping features for the sake of shipping. Shipping just to be shipping. Uh, we see a lot of this in Web3. <laughs> um, I mean, growth stagnating we, or not, actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think that's also a symptom of uh, the work culture that we have, meaning remote remote working and uh, and the people being kind of centralized and not really having, you know, a, a strong team culture because that usually breeds distrust and that usually brings brings micromanagement and that usually brings, you know. Uh, leaders uh, being concerned about people's productivity, and mm. the natural the natural answer to that is like, okay, they cannot be uh, um, without nothing to do, so let's give them something to do because they cannot, you know, stop with nothing to do. So let's invent, you know, shitty functionality and shitty issues for them to work on, and uh, <laughs> let's let's just become a feature factory. A feature. And that's it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that as, that is tightly related with team culture because uh, I, the, most of the examples that I've seen where that is really blatantly clear is where you know leadership doesn't trust the uh, collaborators, 
that they're working with and they just need to make sure that they are doing the work that they're getting paid for and that they're shipping what they should be shipping. And, you know, when the commit number decreases or when the, um, you know, Figma prototypes are not the same amount that they were before or when the blah, 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 that's the only way that they have to know that people are not working as they should. And so the antidote to that is to just give them a lot of a lot of stuff to do. That's probably yeah, not true. I also see this. I mean, I think going back to one of our earlier points of like your roadmap starts to become obscure. I think this and this are kind of coincide. I've worked on some real obscure roadmaps, and then we and then it starts to feel like we're shipping for just for the shaking sake of shipping. And I think. Um, this is out of a place of panic. This is out of a place of control. And I think, um, I think we have to understand that certain like features and products require more work than others. And I think in startup land, we get too scared to waste time, if that makes sense. And we'd rather ship half of a feature or part one of, of a four part feature um, than to like take time and just ship, you know, ship a holistic workable product. Uh, I think everybody has seen that, like that a meme of like MVP where it's like the skateboard or whatever. Uh, I feel like that meme is overused in the wrong context, but I think what I, what I see in web three is shipping, a, you know, the equivalent of a tire to a whole car instead of, and telling users, Oh, the rest of it's coming. Um, and then, yeah. and then, and uh, and you no, know, worse off, you only ship the tire, and then next thing you know, you start shipping the engine to something else, and you never visit the tire. Like that's basically what happens. Um, and I think um, what 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 needs to happen here is really strategy. When when people are coming from this place, they lack a strategy, they lack a roadmap, they probably lack research, and they kind of really don't know where they're going. They're just kind of like a ship going off in random directions and kind of. I mean, by, circling yeah, by, by definition, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But by, by, by definition, their only strategy is to be the first to ship something. It cannot, it yeah. cannot, it cannot be, it cannot be any other strategy because if they uh, go and work in one thing and they ship it and then they start working in another thing and then they ship it, why, right? And if those yeah. things are, if those two things are different, then their only priority is to ship first or something like that, right? To mm -hmm. either, uh, you know, ride the wave of the hype that's current in that moment or whatever it is. Um, there's no other. There's no other criteria, right? So, a strategy that is just based on let's be the first ones to do this is not a strategy, really, right? <laughs> it's it's just like a, it's, it's just a. It's just a, um, you know, an impulse to to be first for some reason to get the attention that maybe that would be first. Being first don't even freaking matter, honestly. Like I said, a niche of a niche. Um, yeah. I I also will point out that what I see happening in this is lack of correlation. They ship sets of features and don't think about okay, what story are we telling with these sets of features? What sets of problems are we solving? A lot of times I see features that have nothing to do with one thing or the other thing. They're like com all completely like random, it seems, things. And they're not thinking about how do these things build onto each other? How does one thing, you know, like I said, correlation. Uh, what, are, what are the sets of things that we are shipping and what what does that like, you know, yeah. uh, unlock but or 
might allow us to do in the future. Um, yeah. Because I, 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 as a designer, I really hate building infrastructure, like at least design infrastructure that I can't use again to build on for something else, you know, stuff like that. You know, you know why I think that happens is uh, that usually happens on organizations where the product manager is the CEO and the CEO wakes up with one idea one day and asks the team to do it. And then in the other day, he wakes up with another idea that's totally different and asks the team to do it. And that's it. Mm -hmm. So the CEO has these whims every once in a while and uh, the product becomes a collection of CEO whims. And uh, that's, that's usually how it happens, right? Either that or a disempowered PM, disempowered and experienced PM. I've seen that from... And, under a CEO that uh, bitches him around, exactly. So, uh, I mean, that's, that's usually... Uh, I mean, that's a very sad context to be in, to be honest, because um, uh, trying to build something without a clear product strategy and uh, without a story, like you said, is really, you know, sh shooting in the dark, basically. And honestly, the only way to solve, this is a hard problem. This is like one of the hardest points on my list um, whenever you're a feature factory, because like you said, a lot of this is cultural. So it, is, it has less to do with the shipping of features and more to do with the culture. Uh, and and a lot of this is, um, a lot of fixing this requires a, a mini coup if, if you will of like some groups of people or one person being like hey this isn't working <laughs> you know like it's not working let's 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 have a let's talk with stakeholders and develop a strategy and and like have a point of view on where we want to go and hire where we need to hire and invest in research where we need to invest in research so the answer to this whole bullet point is culture you know, culture healing and just like drafting a strategy and sticking to it um, and letting that navigate your roadmap and how you build features. Um, yeah. And, uh, and as you said, it usually requires a media, media revolution because yeah. those dynamics, if they are in place in an organization, they are very ingrained and they come from yeah. the top and they've been always there and so on. So to have the courage to change that is really, I mean, I've seen, I, I don't think I've ever seen that happen other than, you know, people start quitting and start joining some other organizations and that's A lot it. of quitting. You're going to see a lot of quitting if you're, if you're at this point of the growth step. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people yeah. leave it, and that's your cue to leave too because yeah. uh, the drain is circling and there's no way, there's no, uh, no life preserver coming for you. Yeah. Um, another point here is you don't measure or reflect on past launches. You ship and then move on to the next thing, allowing features to go maintain, unmaintained. So we've talked about this. So I, I've seen a, in a lot of growth stagnation, generally a lack of reflection, just a general lack of reflection. People have like a, a yeah. momentum mindset and they don't, okay, they don't even measure like if the last feature or product they launch is successful or not. They can't, they couldn't tell you with monthly active users. They couldn't tell you like success metrics. They couldn't tell you anything. Cause nothing, none of that went into building that feature. Um, and this is really expensive. So not, especially in the startup world, people think shipping shit, it feels great. But when you ship stuff and you don't maintain it, and then you have this like wonky infrastructure, it can get very expensive in the long run. Uh, and I don't think people think about that. Yeah, and and uh, 
and it's not just the the expenses that you see because oh the code base is more complex and it takes longer to develop and all that it's also the expense the debt on the experience from the of the user right because um, there's also user experience that that gets uh, accumulated because of this because when a user opens up a product and sees a bunch of things that he doesn't understand he doesn't need feels overwhelmed and churns nobody you know points the finger at oh maybe this is happening because we've been building shit like crazy and without really a lot of uh, you know criteria on what to do right and so the, that kind of debt is really pernicious and really um, hidden and uh, very difficult to account right um, I think I think there should be uh, I think a symptom, a symptom of this is a, an organization that has shipped a bunch of features and hasn't deprecated any features right there's a bunch yeah. of startups that have products that have not cut a, a, one single feature for the last three years which to me sounds crazy which either, yeah. either means either means that all your features on the last three years were uh, great uh, bets because everybody loves them and everybody needs them and everybody keeps using them and they're all equally needed or you're just not re reflecting on what you did and cutting the cutting the fat that you have there and the debt that you have there. So it's most likely the, the latter. Yeah. And also um, the, the insidious part of this is like, it takes a long time to realize this point. It takes a long time to realize the consequences of not measuring. Because what happens is that your top line metrics will start to dip. But then because you're not measuring any metrics or any engagement metrics or anything below that, you don't know why your top line metrics are bad. You just know yeah. that they're bad. And in, in, you'll, in this state, you'll start to see a very panicked CEO and a very like upset because they're looking at the, the bottom line and the bottom line doesn't look good. And then you as a team don't even have the data to tell them why the bottom line is bad. You just yeah. have a bunch of features and you don't know what worked, what didn't work, what you should invest time in and what you should cut. And really the answer to the solution is you just got to start measuring as soon as possible um, yeah. and see and then, where the life is and see where the fat is essentially. Yeah. And, and, and even worse, I've seen organizations at that point, just like starting to, so the top metrics are going down and they're like, okay, we have to invest more in marketing. So let's increase the marketing budget and they start oh, no. to advertise more <laughs> for the wrong things. Right. So that's usually yeah. what happens. Right. So because they, yeah. they start to be like, okay, uh, sales are going down. Okay, maybe it's a lack of marketing. So let's double down on the wrong way. So I mean, it it is really hard to uh, understand what's happening correctly if you don't do uh, reflect on what you've done, right? And if you don't uh, pay attention to how people are using your your, your product, because yeah, I think um, I mean, you could get you could get in a, you could get in a much worse situation than you were before by not having that. Thing. Yeah, and to get specific how to solve this. So you want, for every feature that you have, you need to have a success event or success action. So if, if this feature is working, what does the success look like? Um, and start measuring that event. Um, yeah. and, 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 what, and, and that should be defined That should be defined before you even start thinking about building it, right? That should be true. defined before you start really. designing it, before you start implementing it. So everything should be guided by that answer, yeah. Yeah, but if you're in a situation where a lot of Web3 startups are where you didn't do that and now you need yeah, to. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, define the success metric. And once you define the success metric, 
um, think about the funnel. What is the journey to get to that metric? You want to start looking at your funnel because it, it could be the product or it could be users are not getting there for some reason, um, mm -hmm. or there's a huge drop off in your funnel. Um, so those are two of the good places to start. You can use software like Mixpanel. Um, you can use software like you know Google Analytics if your developers know how to build events and start tracking that. I think the thing about reflecting and tracking is it takes time and you're already down um, because you you need um, you need enough. You need like at least thirty days of data just to even know what is going on to even see a trend. Um, and I say, just start implementing that. And then moving forward, like you said, whenever you're designing a product, you know, you need to outline a couple things. One, what is the success metric? What is the bottom line metric? I mean, the top line metric that this should be affecting as well. Um, who is the owner of this product? I think, I think features and products should have owners because it's going to be less hard to abandon those things when, you know, you assign a person to, or, uh, you know, basically make it someone's responsibility to own that feature or that product. Um, and what are some other things you should do um, before your feature or product building? Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people, and it's in line with what we're talking here, a lot of people start by doing, I mean, so, not a lot of people, some people, uh, start <laughs> by doing a, a post-mortem, right? I mean, you don't mm -hmm. even develop the thing yet, but you do a post-mortem as if, if this fails, it's going to fail for these reasons. And as a team, you kind of uh, brainstorm on what those reasons could be, and then mm. you start designing and implementing the thing. I think that's really valuable to uh, also define the success metric, right? Because it's the inverse of why it failed, right? And uh, and to also design, to also define the design constraints and the you know uh, development constraints and so on around the thing. The problem is yeah. that the problem is that this kind of conversations of like uh, either beforehand trying to predict how this is going to fail or after the fact retrospecting on why this failed. All of these kind of conversations are not happening, not because yes. people don't have, don't have the time to do it, but because people are uncomfortable having these conversations, right? That's the main reason. Because people, people no, nobody wants to admit that like, fuck, we should have think about this before and we didn't and we failed on this. And nobody wants to do that in the group and nobody wants to do that by themselves, right? So um, th there is a, a real need to do these kind of things, either retrospect or force margins and so on, and people don't do it because it is uncomfortable. And the skill of facilitating those moments and doing them in a way that people feel okay doing them, and after they've done the first one, they don't feel awkward about having done the first one, and they never do it again, right? Because it happens a lot. So the skill of facilitating these moments correctly so that they keep happening is actually what I think contributes to a successful organization because if you're not, you know, reflecting on what you've done, you're not learning on what you've done. And so you're just going blind, trying to, you know, trying out things, hoping that it works without, you know, accumulating any knowledge about it. So um, it's, it's, for me, it's really key to, uh, and, and, and it's also a very strong signal when I see an organization that doesn't do retrospectives, doesn't do postmortems. I mean, I, I immediately, uh, you know, um, that's gonna be my next wait, interview wait, question if I ever have to wait, look for it. Yeah, <laughs> waving a red. I mean, waving a red flag in the back and be like, "Okay, you guys are not real about me, right?" When was your last retro, and how did that go? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, unpopular opinion. I think we need more ownership in product. I feel like product is such a collective, such a like a mind meld, 
that it lacks accountability. So then when something goes wrong, it's nobody's fault. Well, and when it's nobody's fault, it's everybody's fault. And I think that assigning owners and specific collaborators to features and product and like holding people accountable for these things. And I don't mean it in the sense of like, this didn't go well, it's your fault. But like, I think if, I think people act differently when something is attached to their name and their reputation versus when it's like, you know, all health, health to skelter, nobody's uh, responsibility, you know? Yeah. I, I think that's, I, I think that's a key. I mean, I've worked in organizations where there were actually the title of product owner and there was a person that was the owner of this part of the product and where I've seen them being fired when that failed. I like that, that, that happens, which is, you know, the extreme of this. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but even then, I don't think that's the thing that works. I think what, what works is uh, any person that's responsible for a part of the product, it should be not because their employment is at stake at the extreme, but because their reputation and their you know um, sense of pride is, is, is attached to this, right? Yeah. Because that's, that's what counts, right? That's what may, really makes a difference. Like if you're working in an organization, you're getting your salary, you're an employee, I mean, even if you're a product owner, even if you know that your job is online, if the fucking thing fails, you care a bit, but you don't care that much. Or even if your bonus is online, if it fails or succeeds, right? You care a bit, but you don't care as much. Now, if your name and reputation is attached to that, that I think is a much stronger incentive. So I like to see, you know, uh, PMs, uh, designers, developers being public about the things they're building. And yes. almost mm-hmm. almost building in public because basically they're putting their reputation on the line, saying, mm-hmm. "If this fails, it's my fault, and I'm not going to hide behind you know some wall of anonymity that uh, it's the, the company name and not my personal name, right?" So, I think I think that's a, the strongest motivator to, you know, to really have ownership in the full sense of the word about uh, parts of the product. Yeah, I, I think and we need a semblance of that because then you start to make less bets and you start to make smarter bets because people move and, you, and, and, you start, and you start to realize that when you're making bets, you should have done your research first because otherwise you're just gambling. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it starts to feel more real. I feel like in a text yeah. space, a lot of times it feels like we're just playing around with like money and stuff and it's just like, this shit is real. People, we affect real people and I think a lot of times when we, uh, you know, the circling the drain, so to speak, uh, especially in a lack of reflection, it's because you lack of reflection is ultimately like a signifier of lack of accountability too um, in the organization. Yeah, yeah because um, because nobody no, nobody wants to be in the position of saying, yeah, this was my fault, guys, right? Because yeah. because that's what hap- that's what happens in retrospectives usually, right? Mm-hmm. Because people start to figure out, okay, it failed because of this reason, it failed because of that reason, it failed because of that reason, and even if nobody's pointing fingers. The people, per, know. the people people know exactly <laughs> people know is that so so at least uh having the you know willingness to face that kind of thing is a good sign and so if you yeah. don't want to face that you don't do the retrospective you don't reflect you don't burn you don't nothing yeah i like the way you framed it post-mortem i used to define it as risk like defining risk and it and honestly yeah. when you I brought it up like I would say, "Hey, let's define the risk. Like, what are we risking here?" It was very uncomfortable conversation, and people yeah. didn't want, didn't want to like visit that town. Like, okay, how could this go wrong? How is this a risky thing? What level of risk? What are we putting on the line? People don't want to think about that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, um, usually post right. postmoderns are more uh, have a more grim tone to it, right? <laughs> but yeah. and so it's, it can also be funny in a way, and so motivating people to do it. It's kind of maybe easier than that. Yeah. Yeah, risk sounds risky. Postmortem sounds like how could this die? It's almost like it's weirdly easier to. to yeah, yeah, yeah. it's about. it's more it's more funny. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. Uh, our last point, and you brought this up in our talk, is like basically you're getting the attention. You're not. You're only getting the attention of people within your own network. But overall, your your marketing engagement and conversations in your Discord are dwindling. It's another sign of circling the drain. Basically, like people in your network know of you, but not much anybody else. Um, can you uh, expand on this? Yeah, I think this is also a failure of product management, product marketing in general. To be honest, which is there are a lot mm -hmm. of people that build a lot of people that build products for the product because they they want to build that product, right? And they don't build, they don't design the distribution of the product. And so it happens a lot that you have a team of people that, uh, you know, had an idea for a product. They even did research. They even found some users. They uh, develop a product that answers user needs. But uh, it only does that for a couple of users. And uh, now that they have the product done, they realize that, you know, how are we going to distribute this? How are people going to find out about this product? How are, we, how are people going to adopt this product? Is there any way that, you know, people can recommend this product easily, so on and so forth? And all those mechanics are not built into the product, right? And then you have to hack away, you know, layers of virality or whatever you want to call it on top of the product and layers of distribution on top of the product and that, you know, screws the product up. I think it's, it's a, a, a very common oversight for people to just design the product, not design the distribution, because especially if you, especially in Web3, because you know people assume that you know, uh, you know, the hype is there and people will come, um, and that you, even worse, that you only need a couple of you know big whales to you know make it worth it, and that's it. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it, I mean, it is very different when you see a product that has been designed with its distribution in mind, and it's working or not, right? And when you see the product that was just designed for the product and then, you know, maybe it doesn't scale, it doesn't expand, it doesn't get more users. So um, when you're at the point that you just have a product and you have no distribution strategy, it's really tough to build the distribution uh, on top of the current product that you have. And so I think that is always a good idea to think about distribution from the beginning. Even if people already have the definition of what the product could be or should be and how it's going to answer the needs of the users and who are the users and all that, another question is, okay, let's imagine that we already built this product. How are people going to find out about it? How are people going to adopt it? How are people going to recommend it, this product to other people? Because a lot of startups fail on that, uh, on that uh, failing mode, basically. Especially because a lot of startups are built with engineers in mind. and, and yeah. I mean, in Web3, it's basically engineering-led. A lot of CEOs or a lot of uh, C-suites are engineers or uh, are very tech-focused. And I think tech-focused people particularly struggle with this, which is marketing and distribution. I think overall, Web3 underinvest in marketing. I think they – I see this – again, I see this called magical thinking where build it and they will come. Oh, if we yeah. just build it, people will just show up and just use this. And it's like, no, <laughs> 
Um, and I think, um, yes, I, I agree with you. Like distribution, again, having conversations before you build the thing. How will people find out about this? How will we distribute this? Um, and, and, and the thing is that the, the answers to those questions will change the product. Like the product will need to be different to answer those questions. That's the problem. And, and, uh, and if you don't uh, ask those questions in the beginning, you just risk building a product that cannot uh, support the good distribution, right? And that's really risky. So, um, I mean, I've seen uh, organizations where when they're faced with that, they just basically have to scrap the product that they've done and think about pivot away because, you know, they ended up with a bunch of effort put into a product that it's actually a high quality product. It actually answers user needs, but uh, it doesn't scale from those, you know, 100 users or handful of users that they have currently. Yeah, and I think, um, honestly, out of all the points we made, this is the most solvable <laughs> or one of the most solvable, which is like, think about distribution before you build the thing, for God's yeah. sake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or uh, actually hire a competent marketing person or business development person to help inform yeah. this conversation. I think I think the reason why this is not considered is because marketing is not in the room when when product decisions are being made or it's design and engineering and like a loose assignment from a CEO and they take that and run. But usually the growth and business development isn't in the room when these things are getting built. They're, they get handed to it to them after the fact. They're like, market this. And they're like, what the hell is this? Uh yeah. And, 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 and in, in Web3, I think it's even more pernicious and worse because mm -hmm. marketing is seen as with a bit of disdain, right? And so yeah. actually the marketeers that we have in Web3 are called community managers, right? <laughs> and so what they have to do is to manage the Discord and, uh, you know, uh, gather a community around the product and blah, 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 which it is a form of marketing and it is a very web three form of marketing. But I mean, if you're expecting to gather a community for a product that's already built without their input and try to maybe force them to, I mean, that's not going to work, right? Uh, we have this tendency of uh, downplaying uh, marketing efforts in web three because we think it's, you know, all for the vibes and people will show up and blah, blah, blah. And uh, I mean, it is a sign of immaturity basically, to be honest. It is because in any other context, marketing is king. Marketing yeah, sells nobody everything. doubts that. Nobody doubts that. Yeah, exactly. It sells everything, literally. That's why people buy stuff. There is a people down. People in the tech field, they see marketing as this like magical thing, and they're like, and marketing professionals as like, oh, y'all are just talk. I just take meetings all day. I don't have a real job. Yeah, uh, exactly. Y'all don't. You're a non-builder. You know that yeah, term. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's like, okay, well, in like in Web two and in every other thing, marketers make a lot of effing money because guess what? They bring the sales and they help with the bottom line. So you need them even if you don't like them. Um, yeah. And I think and, it's also a cultural thing. A lot of Web two, Web three people are like tech, not tech. You know, they're nerds, and you know, a lot of marketing you're seeing there's like bros and like you know, very extroverted people. And, and even so, even worse, even worse. I mean, uh, there's a, a kind of a feeling that if you're advertising your thing too much, it, maybe it's a scam, right? You're trying to scam people. There is yeah. there is that, that kind of feeling that someone that. Uh, as a marketing kind of uh, role or personality and is trying to convince people to use their product 
maybe uh, they're a scammer, right? Maybe yeah. they're trying to pull you into a scam or into a rug or whatever. This this happens, and so we th this is not a healthy prejudice to have to be honest. No. <laughs> and, and it's making Honestly, us. Honestly, we need uh, to do something about. I think the industry yeah. needs to do something about or do more about trust. But aside from that, I think if you hire an experienced Web three, whatever whatever you can afford. Some people can only afford you know a, a conf, you know um, an agency. And they don't want to have to pay somebody in-house. Some people can afford someone in-house. I think you should you should be hiring. I think this is the one of the roles that you need someone who's well versed in Web three, because like you said, you can't go you can't approach marketing Web three tools the same way you would regular tools because of that like that skepticism that's there and that trust. And so you definitely need to hire someone who's familiar with the field who has you know contacts this person is going to need a, you know a bit of clout because a lot of web3 marketing is networking and business development and integrations and connections um excuse me but it can be done and you definitely need those people's input because also with their input think about how much harder they're going to want to go for selling something that they were a part of making versus handed to yeah know? exactly exactly they would be much much happier working for something that they're they're selling a product that they uh, you know, uh, is empowering them on their role of selling the product, right? <laughs> Instead of a product that is working against them. So yeah, I mean, it's the it's the maximum of sales, right? You have to believe the product to be able to sell it effectively. So we should be designing products that that salesmen and marketers believe in. Yeah. And let's just accept that marketing is magic, and you need to hire those magicians. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I, that's the end of our points. I think. This is actually one of my favorite podcasts so far. I think we talked about a lot of juicy stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I think I think we're missing each other as well because we've 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 been a couple of months without doing this. And True, we miss each other. And yeah. I, I, <laughs> uh, but I think I mean, if you're a Web three organization and circle in the drain, follow our advice. Don't follow our advice. This is all of our hot takes. I think. Um, I think uh, no, I guess if I had to summarize everything <laughs> to be corny, know when to hold them and know when to fold. <laughs> <laughs> and we've given you a lot of uh, information to, to make that decision <laughs> if you're a stakeholder. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and don't bullshit yourself. I mean, get real as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. start with the bullshit. Humble yourself. Take yeah. the ego yeah. out of it. I think this advice is also just good great general life advice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, see y'all next time. Hopefully, we're gonna we're gonna start posting once a month. We're gonna try not to ghost y'all. Um, thank you for the people who are still listening and still tuning in. All fifty of you, hopefully hundreds in the future. Um, but uh, this has been a great episode. Thank you so much for finishing this episode of Designer Dow. To learn more about us, follow us at, on Twitter and our website, designer-dow.xyz. Until next time.